0: Isaiah 41, we'll be looking at. I wonder if you've ever heard anybody say, I wonder if you say yourself, um, look, I simply don't need Jesus in order to be a good person. I don't need him. I don't know why I ought to follow him. I don't know why you're pressing him upon me. I don't need Jesus to be a good person. When, When you hear someone say words like that, what is it that they mean? My experience is often that they mean something along these lines. They mean, look, I've got a a sense of morality, which I believe to be sufficient. It's a sense of morality which gives uh, me a feeling of doing the right things, and it's a a, a level of morality which at least keeps me respectable towards other people. Coupled with the idea, there might be things of, um, look, I, I just don't need Jesus to give me anything. I live in the Waste. I've got so much material wealth. I don't feel particularly in need. And surely, if there is a, the, the God of Christianity existing, then I can't have offended him so much, or else surely I wouldn't enjoy all this wealth and pleasure. And also, even if I was to begin following Jesus, what more happiness, what more pleasure could he add to my life that I've not already got? And so people make this excuse, look, I, don't, I just don't need Jesus. And they continue serving their own gods. Yes, they continue serving their own gods. Uh, And that's important to recognise. Each of us is a worshipper. Each of us has a god that we serve. Now, it might be for for some a personal god, by which I mean a a god with a personality. And perhaps if you're speaking to a Muslim or or a Hindu um, or someone who's grown up in those cultures, they might be quite explicit that that is their god. But there are many who serve gods which are impersonal. Gods which are really principles or powers or ideas. common one might be uh, nature. I serve the environment. I, the, the, the highest cause that I can give my life to is to make sure that I care for this planet, this universe that we are a part of. Others might seek to serve or worship some other impersonal god. They 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 don't worship it as in they bow down to it. They don't worship it as in they uh, they worship like we worship Jesus. They don't sing songs to these principles, but they worship in the sense that they value these things as the thing of most worth in their life. They trust these things as their source of greatest security. And so these things might be, for example, um, status and power. And you would see that when someone gives their lives wholly to things like education. They've got to give all their time and all their energy into into getting up that ladder of education. And then they they reach the top of that ladder and then they've got to dive into their career. And they're not satisfied until they keep climbing up the ladder. They get a a bigger business, a a better responsibility at work, More, more wealth and more money coming in, bigger houses and so on. Status, power, control. Other gods might be the gods of reason by which they say, I will I will serve whatever it is that I believe is right. And their own reason becomes the highest benchmark by which they assess anything in life. Or it might be their own happiness. I will just do what makes me happy and what, make, what makes the people around me happy. And especially those last two, the idol really there, the God, is the God of self. By which I don't mean that they are utterly selfish, horrible people who only ever do things for themselves. They're still able to do things for others. But as they do things for others, why are they doing it? They're doing it because it makes themselves feel good. They serve others only songs so that it fits their agendas. And songs so that the people that they're serving are worthy, as they see it, of receiving their help. Um, their, their, their own reason, their own understanding is the highest benchmark by which other things ought to be judged and assessed. That's what I mean by putting themselves as the God there. We're all worshippers, whether we like to think it or not, even if we claim to be entirely secular. We're all worshippers. And today, what we're going to hear is a challenge. We're going to hear the gods, the idols... Those things that we worship in life, we're going to hear them challenged, ridiculed. And it might be embarrassing as we see these gods taken apart piece by piece. But this isn't just a time of mockery and derision towards those false gods. This will also be a time of invitation. God is going to make an invitation. He's going to tear down the false idols and he's going to make an invitation for you to accept the only real alternative. His servant. In Isaiah 42, the servant of the Lord. We'll get in time to thinking about who that is. Just a little bit of context then to recap where we are in Isaiah. Um, As I said earlier, Isaiah 40 to 65 really fit together as one big piece, one long argument. And Isaiah is writing into the future. So the people that Isaiah is writing to are not there around him. He's putting these words down on paper so that in time people can read them. And he's writing to the people who will one day, the Jews, who will be exiled from their their land of of Judah and living in in Babylon under a a foreign king, uh, oppressed, and finding things difficult in that place. Uh, And because Isaiah is writing into the future, as we saw last week, the application is not just to those Jews in that situation. The application will also land on us today. And Isaiah's main message to the exiles is, I wonder if you can remember the word that summed up last week's message. Isaiah's main message is, Isaiah 40 verse 1, comfort. Comfort, comfort my people, because the Lord's salvation is coming. How can you know that the salvation is coming? Well, last week the argument was, because God is utterly in control. God is the one who holds all the storms of the sea in the palm of his hand. God is the one who calls out each star by name and puts it in its place. God is the one who utterly controls all things in this universe. And this week, his argument is a little bit different. The argument continues. How can we know that this comfort is coming, this salvation is coming? And... The focus this week is on a challenge to the false idols. That's what we're going to look at first, the challenge to the false idols. Verse 21, you've got like a courtroom scenario uh, or It really it becomes a bit more like a boxing ring, to be honest. But uh, let's imagine it as a courtroom for the time being. And God says, right, bring out your idols and bring out the messengers of your idols and come out and present your case. Make your arguments. Prove to us that your idols are genuine, that they are real, that they are powerful, that they have control. Tell us what will happen. If your God, if the one that you trust in, if the one that you seek to serve in order to find this sense of security, if he really is a God, if he really has power to protect you, if he really can influence history in a way that you want him to, then not only does he have the power to change the future, he has the power to predict the future. That's the real test that God is laying down. If your God is genuine, he will be able to predict. So, Bring out your idol. Put them in the courtroom and let's hear. Come on, tell us. We're listening. We're all ears. We're ready to hear. What is the idol going to say? Now, Isaiah, especially these last chapters of Isaiah, are full of scathing attacks on idols. And, of course, at the time of Isaiah, idols in that time would often be little statues, little figurines that people would make and bow down to. And Isaiah is so quick to to mock them and ridicule them. Back in uh, chapter 41, verse 5 to 7, he's got this funny little situation where you've got the craftsmen encouraging one another. Yeah, you put the gold on. Yeah, you bring the silver. Oh, that looks really good. Perfect title. We've made it really nice. Look at it. This is the one that's going to protect us. Now, you, you better just nail it down onto the table so he doesn't fall over. And, and back in chapter 40, verse 19, Isaiah was mocking, look, your idol, your idol is only ever as strong as the person who owns it. You've got one person who's got the wealth in order to build their idol out of pure gold. Wow, what a powerful idol. What a, what a respectable thing. But then you, along comes a poor man, and what can he do? All, all he can do is go into the wood and, and find a piece of wood lying on the floor that he hopes will not rot, and he makes the same idol out of such a thing as that. What sort of God is it that is dependent upon the one serving him for the strength that he has? And Isaiah is quick to mock these idols, and we'll see that in the next chapters in the next few weeks as well. And so verse 22 um, of chapter 41, we are back to our passage again. Uh, verse 22, Isaiah then lowers the bar. He says, okay, if it's too difficult for your idol to predict the future, maybe... Maybe they could at least interpret the present events. Uh, To use a footballing analogy, it's like as though Isaiah has been asking them to predict, tell us, who's going to win the season this year? And then he said, if that's too difficult, then why don't you just, look, Man City are 2-0 up on Man United, and there's 15 minutes left to go in the game. Who's going to win? Can you even interpret the current events? Can you even answer with certainty about what is happening right here, right now, and what will be the outcome of it? And Isaiah throws this challenge down. Do something, he says, verse 23. Do something, whether good or bad, just just influence something. Change something. Bring some answer. Now, as Westerners, it's quite easy for us to, to chuckle as we think about those little statues that are so often made and people bowing down to them and people having to, to feed these gods that they, uh, they pretend to serve as though a god would need feeding. And it's quite easy to join in with Isaiah's mockery on <laughs> yeah, those idols that people serve in other parts of the world. Or even here in Britain still. Um, those idols that people serve. It's also ridiculous, isn't it? But you've got to be careful because Isaiah's challenge to these idols also applies to those impersonal idols that we often see in the lives of Westerners around us or perhaps in our own lives. The same challenge applies. Think back to those gods that I mentioned earlier, especially those impersonal gods. And ask, what can they realistically predict? What can they protect you from? How real is their power that they offer you? For those who seek after money and wealth and status, money is useful. It's a useful thing. And it's helpful to have money in the bank. The Bible says, money is the answer for everything. It really does. Money is useful, but can it protect you? Do people with more money live happier lives? Are people with more money less likely to suffer difficulty in life, or hurt, or loss, or confusion, or anxiety? Do people with bigger portfolios face any less risk from financial collapse? They don't. Money cannot offer the security that it so often promises you. So as a side note, don't be afraid to give your money away. Don't be afraid to share it. Because it's not offering you any of the the security that you might think it promises. What about those who make uh, their status, their their education, for example, uh, the the God of their life, who trust it uh, to protect them and lead them through life? Well, answer yourself this. Is it those who get the best grades who always get the best jobs? No, it isn't. Is it those with higher responsibility in the company who live more satisfied lives? No, often not. Is it the people with the most successful career who die with fewest regrets? No. These gods offer us satisfaction and happiness. They offer to guide and protect us through life, but they cannot deliver. What about those who trust in their own reason or seek knowledge as a source of protection and guidance? Ask yourself this, for all the times that you ever watch the news and and, and fill your mind with information about what is going on out there, has that ever made you less anxious? Has it ever really given you that sense of control that you often feel is promised? If only I knew what was really happening, I would be more at peace. But it doesn't, does it? You find out more about what's going on and it only makes you more anxious about what's going on. And you get sucked into this cycle of seeking, reading, finding out more. Because the God of reason, the God of knowledge, cannot deliver, cannot truly protect. At best, these things are useful tools to help us through life. But when we make these things the foundation of our life, we very quickly find that we've built our foundation upon sand. It is shaky. It is shaky. And we are just one storm of life away from everything being demolished. And so that's why, verse 24, the conclusion is, you are less than nothing. These idols, they are utterly worthless. They are empty. And not only the idol, but also those who attach themselves to the idols become detestable. But then, verse 25, God speaks into the situation. Verse 25, God is different. I, I have stirred one up from the north. And he comes. Now, the prophecy that has been revealed to us here is, I think, personally, one of the most remarkable prophecies in all of the Old Testament. Imagine if I asked you today, when will Google shut down? When will Google close? It's hard to think about that, okay? Google will one day shut down. It will end. It will come to a stop. Even the Roman Empire fell, okay? Google will stop. But to think about it today, they're just so big. They're just so influential. Google knows when I'm riding my bike, when I'm driving my car. Google knows where I work and where I live. I didn't even tell it. It just knows. Google knows all the people that I ever speak to, really. Google knows all the TV that I ever watch. Google knows nearly all the things that I ever buy. And Google knows that not just for me, but probably for you, and for the vast majority of people across the Western world, and increasingly across the whole world. I can't find any information on the internet without Google, but I can, but I often use Google. I, I, I don't often go to a new place without Google helping me to get there. Google are immense. And they, 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 they fill every nook and cranny of our lives. Their empire is ginormous and it seems unbreakable. Who could rival such a business as theirs? Who could come in as competition? And in Isaiah's day, Babylon was such an empire. Babylon was such an empire. It was the, the world empire, the world superpower. There was no one more powerful on earth than the king of Babylon. And God says, it's going to fall. And I'll tell you when it's going to fall, and I'll tell you how it's going to fall, and I'll tell you who is going to knock it down. And I'll even give you his name. 150 years before it happens, here's his name, Cyrus. Chapter 45. Isaiah chapter 45. You get the name of King Cyrus. And Cyrus is the king of Persia. And Persia is the empire that destroyed, demolished Babylon. Took it apart. And God says, your idols, they can't even tell you what's happening today. So don't bother trusting them for what might happen tomorrow. Here's God, I'm speaking. I'm telling you what is going to happen 150 years from now. Every detail of history is entirely in my hands. Who are you going to trust? Who are you going to depend on? I was the first to tell you. You heard it here first, God says, verse 27. Verse 27. Now, if I've got your attention, if you realise the futility of trusting those false idols, here's the alternative. Look, my servant. Look at my servant. Remember, the context of these chapters is God giving comfort. God giving the promise of salvation. And God is now saying, I'm going to achieve this salvation through my servant. And what is this servant going to do? Chapter 42 Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I'll put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He won't shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he won't break, a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring justice. He won't falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on earth. In his law, the islands, that is, all the furthest reaches of the world that we know, even the islands will put their hope. This servant will bring justice. And what is this justice? Well, verse 4, as we've just read, suggests that this justice would be a, a king with a law. A law that rules in a way that is fair and protects even the weakest uh, a bruised reed hes not going to break a smouldering wick. He'll not snuff out. It's going to be so different to the, the situation in Judah, even, Isaiah described at the beginning of this book, where the religious leaders were taking and feeding themselves. They were, they were grabbing from others, and they were oppressing the poor. Here's one who's going to be full of justice, full of uh, fairness. Well, how does that help? Why is justice part of the salvation that God is promising? Well, for the Jew, of course, justice especially worldwide justice, would include getting back their land, the inheritance that God had given us, their place back in Jerusalem. So, yes, roll on. Justice, bring it. But justice justice is not just a matter of criminality. It's not just a matter of the state saying what is right and what is wrong, what is lawful to do and what is unlawful. That is often the way we describe justice, but justice, especially here, is so much more than that. In verse 6, God says, I have called you in righteousness. Righteousness. I have called you in all of what I say is right. In all of what is ultimately right. Not just what the state has ability to rule over, but everything that is absolutely right. It's not against the law to tell a lie in most situations, but it's against God's righteousness. It's not against the law to be insulting or hurtful towards someone in most situations but it's against God's righteousness. This leader, this servant, this king, this one who is going to come, is going to be called in God's righteousness. And he's going to uphold not just a state law, but he's going to uphold all of what God says is right and wrong. Now the question is, who is this servant? Who's it going to be? If you answer that question with Jesus... You've got the right answer, but you've not got it from the text. Okay, It's the right answer, and we'll get to that eventually. But looking at the text, who is this servant? It could be this King Cyrus who's going to be raised up. This Persian king who's going to demolish the Babylonians. Um, but a, a, better, uh, uh, a better idea looking at the text would be Israel itself. Chapter 41, verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen... And repeatedly, throughout chapters 40 to 65, Israel is referred to as the servant. This is the servant. And much of what Israel was designed to do was to bring about this law for the whole world. When God chose Abraham, he said, through you the whole world will be blessed. When God brought Israel out of Egypt, he said that that the nations would see that I am a powerful God and a good God because of the way that you are acting and living together. Israel was supposed to be like this light, like this, this influence in the world around them. But they never succeeded in that task. And chapter 42, just after the, where we stop the reading, God condemns Israel. He says, look, you, you are deaf. Uh, you, you are blind. Who is blind but my servant? Israel, you were supposed to be my servant. You were supposed to be doing this job that the servant of the Lord is going to do. But you have You failed. You're not up to the task. And at this stage in Isaiah's prophecy, he's still painting a developing picture. We've not got all the answers here. But over the next 20 chapters, Isaiah is going to add detail after detail after detail, and eventually you're going to be able to be precise about, ah, who is this servant then that is going to be sent? Isaiah is going to tell us, or already has started to tell us, that this servant is going to be from the line of David. David. From David's family. He's going to tell us that this servant is going to be born of a virgin. He's going to tell us that this servant is going to live and work in a place called Galilee, by the River Jordan. He's going to tell us that as he lives and works, he's going to be healing the sick. He's going to have a, a ministry of healing. He's going to tell us that as he performs this ministry, he's going to do it quite secretively. Not secretively in hiding away, but, but not exalting himself, not, not spreading his message too quickly. He's going to tell us that although he's doing a lot of good, he's rejected by the leaders of the people. And he's going to tell us that the leaders of the people, at the time when the servant comes, are going to be filled with hypocrisy. And they're going to hate this servant. He's going to tell us that this servant will be falsely accused of being blasphemous. He's going to tell us uh, that this servant will be put on trial. And that at his trial, this servant will be silent. He will not say a word. He's going to tell us that after his trial, all of his friends, all of those people who committed to him, closest to him, his supporters, are going to desert him and leave him. He's going to tell us how this servant is going to be whipped and beaten, and bruised. He's going to tell us that this servant will be buried in an unusual place because he will be buried with the rich people, although he was not rich himself is going to tell us that when he is killed, he is killed alongside criminals. He's going to be counted as a criminal, though he'd done nothing wrong himself. These are only the prophecies that we find in Isaiah. I've not touched on prophecies that we get from Jeremiah uh, and the other prophets in the Old Testament, or the Psalms. This is only what Isaiah tells us. And you can see, I hope, as you piece all these little bits together, you realise what, what God is preparing us for is Jesus Christ. The servant of the Lord is Jesus Christ. Yet again, God is showing us he has ultimate control over all of history and he's preparing the right person to come at the right time, in the right place, in the right way, in order to bring about this justice. Justice which is not just criminal law, which is... Uh, which makes a nice nation to live in, justice which is God's righteousness that infills every area of life and even more, he will be opening eyes that are blind, he'll be freeing captives from prison, he'll be releasing those who sit in darkness. That is more than just criminal law that this servant is going to institute. He's going to set us free from all that is wrong, all the damage, all the sin of this world. How is he going to do it? Verse 6 still. He is going to be a covenant for the people. He is going to be a covenant for the people. Interestingly, Israel received a covenant from God. And it was their covenant with God that that made them this potential to be a light to the world. But this servant is not just going to receive a covenant or be in covenant. He's going to be the covenant. The covenant is is like a, a binding promise. If you break it, there are consequences. When God made a covenant with Abraham, Abraham had to kill a bull. He killed a ram. He killed a goat. He killed a dove. He killed a pigeon. He cut them in half. And he laid them out on the floor. And it was as if to say, if either one of us breaks this promise, let, let the same that has happened to these animals happen to us. And God, in a smoking fire pot, came down and passed through the animals to, to show his commitment to the promise. Let me read you from... Matthew chapter 24, I think. Matthew chapter 26. This is Jesus the night before his crucifixion. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup. He gave thanks and he offered it to them and this is what he said. Drink from it all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus himself is going to offer his own blood as the blood that secures and seals the covenant. Jesus is going to be The covenant. He's going to offer his own life. And what is the covenant going to achieve? It is uh, my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That is the covenant that God is going to make. Forgiveness of sins. Which other idol can offer you that? Which other idol can wash your guilty conscience clean? Which other idol can bring you back into right relationship with God? There is none. And Isaiah reinforces that this work of the servant is not going to be easy. He's he's going to have to be like a warrior going out to battle. Chapter 42, verse 13. He's going to be like a a woman in labour, screaming in pain, writhing in order to give birth to this child. When did all that happen? It happened at the cross. Where he defeated Satan, the greatest enemy. He defeated him by taking on the punishment for our sin upon himself so that Satan has no more weapon against us. No longer can Satan accuse you if you're in Christ because all your sin has been paid for. Jesus was like a warrior on the cross going out in battle. It was not easy. He spilt his blood doing it but he won the victory. Jesus was like a birthing mother gasping, panting and with his last breath he gasped it's finished it's done, I've paid and in that moment, it opens the door for you to be born again. For your new life to start. Because you are free from condemnation. And you can, you're forgiven. And you can live a new life that honors and pleases God. Jesus Christ gave his own life so that you could start new life. And it results in total change. It results in praise, thanksgiving to Jesus Christ, this servant. It results in darkness turning to light. It results in uncertainty turning to hope. It results in destruction turning to glory. It results in affliction becoming light and easy. There will always be people who say, I don't need Jesus. I I just don't need him. But they're totally wrong. Because there is not a single person who has ever escaped the guilt of sin through any other idol, through any other God, through any other servant, other than Jesus Christ. They might not need Jesus for a nicer car. They might not even need Jesus for a happier life. But they need him for forgiveness. They need him for eternity. Those who depend upon idols will eventually be brought to shame. Chapter 42, verse 17. Those who trust in idols those who say to images, those who depend upon things in this life, they will be turned back in utter shame. They will face condemnation and judgment. But those who depend upon Jesus will experience great joy and receive new life through the forgiveness that he has brought for us.